Well, hello everyone. I am that Weems guy here for another episode. And there's a strange phenomenon occurring amongst the the show guests. When I up the, update them on the numbers of how their episode is doing, the first thing they really the only thing they ask me is, "Did I beat John Hearn?" <laughs> and it's amazing. I sent Gary Greco a text today on what the number his episode was at and gary's response was is that beating her <laughs> i'm like wow even gary <laughs> so here to help john be part of an episode that has good numbers tonight is eric gillhouse so you can all go ahead and take your drink here's eric eric how you doing good Lee. how are you <laughs> i am doing well and obviously the other guest tonight is john hearn how you doing john I'm doing great. <laughs> and he's safe, folks. He didn't he didn't leave after, in disgust after that. All right. Dude, somebody has to set the low bar. That's all I'm saying. If yeah. I can do nothing but serve as a bad example, I will have done my part. Well, there you go. It's such Just remember, I'm a drinking game now. <laughs> Someone has to be the minimum standard, John. And, and here I am. 71 badge and a gun, as we used to say. All right. Uh, we're going to discuss uh, several interrelated topics tonight, and I'm sure we'll probably get into some stuff that's not interrelated. Uh, but the key uh, element of the show is we're going to discuss a gaze, G-A-Z-E, study that was done by the Force Science Institute. And what the study did was is it tracked the gaze patterns as like where people are looking amongst two different groups one a very veteran group of uh, basically SWAT officers and then a group of rookies fresh out of field training and they were given a scenario that we'll, we'll talk about shortly but that's where we're starting off with tonight and it just should be prefaced that all three of the people on the show tonight are graduates of the Force Science Institute and so in addition to the articles that we're going to reference and that we're going to um, I'll put the links to them in the show notes. Uh, we have seen video from these studies as well. So, And one other thing I just want to hit on with it too is most of what we're talking about was done testing this premise in the law enforcement armed, armed individual world, but they've also applied it to basketball, hockey, golf of all things, right? Perfectly good waste of a rifle range is a golf course, but this isn't something that is just like trying to excuse law enforcement of the armed citizen. This is an actual thing occurring in human performance. The premise of the study is that the, the two different groups of officers were given a scenario and they were told that there was a high probability of a terrorist attack at the, uh, basically the consulate or wherever, what the, what was it, an immigration it was an immigration issue at a consulate yeah. or with a consular officer. Right. right. And basically what, what the scenario was, was a individual came in about a problem with their passport and there was a disagreement. The clerk wasn't able to help them and the customer or becomes irate and then spins and draws an object uh, from their waistline. Sometimes it was a firearm. Sometimes it was a cell phone. Um, I want to start off with, John, you have mentioned numerous times the issue of dispatch priming. So if you would touch on really quickly what dispatch priming is, then we can relate that to what we're going to be talking about. Uh, dispatch priming is the idea 
that officers will start to form their mental game plans based on the information that's provided by dispatchers uh, while they're en route to the scene. You know, a good officer is going to be kind of planning, try to be two to three moves ahead, and they're going to have to use that information. And there's a fundamental difference between getting information that says, hey, there's a, uh, you know, a guy and he's acting kind of weird versus, oh, my God, there's this guy. He's waving a gun around. Um, you know, anytime you get bad, in, inaccurate information fed into the system, um, it's just going to turn out badly, uh, have a much better chance of turning out badly. You know, these are uh, officers having to make decisions off of imperfect information. And the more imperfect that information is, the more likely something bad is, something tragic is likely to happen. Yeah, I think back to the Tamir Rice incident in Cleveland, where the officers were dispatched to a person with a gun at the park. And the dispatcher was given the information that, and it may be a toy gun. But that information with a toy gun. Yeah. And that information was not disseminated to the officers. And when they pull up, they're approached immediately by the individual with the gun and they reacted uh, accordingly. So I wonder if the opposite could be true as well, that if the dispatcher had put that information out, that that might have been in the officer's heads. Hey, this may be a young man with a gun. Let's be more cautious. Well, and those are two very, very different calls. There's a kid waving a toy gun around versus there's an armed gunman threatening people with a pistol. That Those are two entirely different calls. Yeah. Uh, Eric, any comment? No other than, well, yes. With the dispatchers, I think there's a tendency kind of across the board, and this is from talking to them. It's been a few years since I spent any time in that chair. They're loath to put out information that kind of runs counter to the officer safety thing. So they'll go overboard about weapons in a home. Yeah, walk into a kitchen, there's weapons all over that room. But they're not necessarily willing to put out information that may run counter to that. So I think on that case, and I'm going to guess, because I'm sure the information's out there, I just haven't found it, but that there was some concern about if I say it's a toy gun and it turns out to be a real gun, then, I have, then, then we set the officers up for a problem. Um, right. And the reason we're touching on that before we discuss the study is that, as noted, the officers were told there's a high probability of a terrorist attack. And if I'm told that, I'm thinking I'm going to work to have a gunfight today. And so that may prime responses that if it's like, and the scenario is, you know, you're standing here to help assist with a, a tour of the office. And then that same incident occurs. So, uh, Eric, do you want to give some of the basic facts of the study that I may have missed? So they looked at a series of experienced officers. We still my voice going. Yeah. Okay. We're Sorry. Good. Screen came back to it. They looked at a series of officers who were armed officers in the British police force, as well as it looked like recruits who had or officers who had just come out of the training program for that. So experience versus new. Um, it was done inside an office space. Everyone had simunitions equipment on. There was a camera filming the officer. The officer was wearing camera equipment that not only tracked the direction he was looking and what he was seeing, but also was looking at reflections off of the cornea to see where he was actually looking they had computer software that would overlay where the officer was looking on the video that he was seeing, uh, what he was looking at, how long he was looking at. And 
the role player would come in, have an interaction with the clerk. The role player's back was to the officer the entire time. It was going to be a minute long interaction. Somewhere towards the last five, six, seven seconds, the role player was going to quote snap unquote, slam the table and either draw a gun or draw a cell phone and then turn towards the officer. John, anything you want to add? No, I, I would just uh, make a note that, uh, you know, they're using very sophisticated eye tracking software. This is the exact same equipment they use to monitor how Olympic athletes perform, how professional sports players perform. Uh, it even got down, it would track like you could tell the time every time an officer blinked during that mm. process. So it was drawing a, a huge amount of information on what the officer's eyes were actually tracking, uh, you know, with incredible detail. And, and they track how long an officer's eyes rested in a certain spot. Yes. And so, I, I believe there was a term they use. It's called saccades. Am I saying that right? Saccades or saccades? Uh, it's, it's close saccades, enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've heard it both ways. Yeah, and that's the sudden. John, you go ahead and define it. That's the sudden. Uh, I don't. I don't have a handy definition. I know it has to do with a rapid eye movement, and then when right. the eye settles, you know, saccades are rapid eye movements, as opposed to the idea of the quiet eye, which is when the eye settles and becomes stable for a measurable time. Right. You notice how I make fun of you, but then I throw the tough definition right to you. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Uh, you know, it, 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 it can be a sliding scale and a double standard. <laughs> I know you're here for me. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and the difference there for our audience is, you know, talking about quiet eye, that's where the eye is settling in on a fixed point versus the saccades or however you say it. The eye is moving from point to point. Right. Are we, are we agreed on that definition? Yes. Yeah. The eyes are kind of darting, looking for information in no particular uh, fashion until they settle on something. Yeah. And as a programming note, in a future episode, we'll be interviewing Mike Ox on a book that he's written. And he touches on the Cicades subject as well. And so, so that, is, that will be a, an episode that's coming down the road. All right. So what did the study find as the differences between the veteran cops and the rookie cops? Eric? More experienced officers were only looking at a few things, whereas the less experienced, the, the less experienced officers were looking all over. Uh, the, the tracking was here and there with the experienced officers. It seemed to be very much which hand is this guy left or right handed? OK, he's right handed. Where's the right hand? Where's what the what's the right hand doing? Every now and then coming up to check the face, I think you could see it like occasionally the head would turn back over the shoulder and there'd be some look at the face, but then back down to where that right hand was and what that right hand was doing. And as the role player spun up, it was more intense focus on to where that hand was. Uh, whereas with the, the less experienced officers, it was still continuing to bounce all over. John. Well, no, I, it, uh, you know, the, the, one of the things I think the study showed was that the experienced officers um, knew what to look for. That's one of the problems we're always faced with is there's a tremendous amount of potential information that you could pay attention to. The, the issue is going to be is that that's way too much information for us to process. And the expert is the person who knows what to pay attention to. Uh, not necessarily in this, not just in this study, but when we look at uh, some of the naval aviation training where simulation training camp comes from is what they found was, um, you had to get somebody through three dogfights for them to really be a 
you know, successful at being a pilot. And what they figured out was it wasn't experience per se. It was learning what to actually pay attention to. There's all kinds of things in a dogfight you could pay attention to. But by the third fight, they were figuring out what actually mattered to their survival. And it's that, you know, that expertise is basically knowing what matters and what doesn't. And to a certain degree, which patterns are significant and which patterns aren't, because um, these aren't discrete, you know, conscious decisions. They tend to be based on patterns of movement as opposed to specific observations. Right. I'm sure you've both seen the training films of the, the, the guy saying, the hands, rookie. Yes. Uh, uh, for my friend in the, uh, Seth in South Dakota, that was for you. That, he loves to repeat that line all, all, all throughout a training class. Uh, so for, for the audience that hasn't seen that, there's a series of training films. When, when were those made? Probably 70s? These aren't the Buck Savage films, are they? No, Buck Savage is, is a little bit more humorous. That, yeah. that could be an entire episode on its own. Um, <laughs> just just playing lines from the Buck Savage videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing that I'm struck with, you know, you talk about the patterns there. Uh, David Klinger, who was a, L, I think that's his name, was an LAPD officer mm-hmm. that later became a professor of psychology, wrote a book about deadly force. And one of the things I remember from the book was, Officers that have been in multiple shootings, the first or second shooting, the gun was in the holster at the outset, but like from shootings three on, the gun was in their hands at a ready position at the outset because their brain had picked up on these patterns. Like we've seen this movie before. We know where this is going. We need to be in a more advantageous position. And that goes back to, I know Eric will probably get into these details, but I think that, you know, there were some very concrete results we can discuss, but that was one of the things I noticed about the the expert officers was the gun came out of the holster noticeably earlier than the novice officers did. And again, that, you know, that has certain advantages because that's one less thing you have to worry about. You know, the, you know, that motor program is already run. You're at a low ready. Uh, You you can free up a little mental resources to to worry about the problem you're trying to address. That's, that's noted in a couple articles from Force Science. They do talk about the draw starting about three quarters of a second sooner, if I remember it right, with the experienced officers. What I didn't see watching the videos today, getting ready for tonight, was them showing the subject when he draws, when he pulls the cell phone. But it was a, it was very clear to any of us who've like stood on a line at a class or at a match. And when the, when the role player, the bad guy goes to draw, it is a very distinct elbow comes way high up to access something in the waistband and continues upward and rearward like you would see from a concealed draw anytime you're standing behind a line or at a match. And then the role player turns to the left, moving that gun. So there's a period of time where the right hand and arm completely disappear, but when everything reappears, on the left-hand side, it's clear there's both hands on the gun and that gun's coming around and up. I believe the study also showed that the veteran officers tend to tended to track the object in the suspect's hands yes. longer than the rookie officers did. Yeah, I think because they were on it sooner. And um, the one video I think they keep, the one iteration I think they keep playing is you see the tracking, you, go to the hand, go to the elbow, back to the hand. And then it's waiting for that hand to come out the other side or it's moving to where that hand should come out the other side. It's there and they're already on it with the experienced officers. Okay. 
John, any comment? Well, uh, no, I agree with everything there. I was going to say, you know, it might be worth throwing out, you know, the some of the other performance differences, you know, as far as hit rates, mistake of fact shootings. I think all those are illuminating as well um, for Eric to chime in with. Oh, thank you. Let me go back. Let me go back to it. <laughs> I'm here for you, man. I can return favors. <laughs> wow. You were the one that had the numbers ready in the free show discussion. I, well, I was going to him. I was going to him. Um, okay. So when it came to the, the cell phone runs, the runs where the uh, role player pulled a cell phone, in about 60% of the runs through, the rookie shot at the role player when he had a cell phone compared to 18% of the time by the experienced officers. So possibility of the dispatch priming, not knowing where to look, running completely off the motion, right? Driving that decision to shoot when it wasn't when it wasn't going to be articulable right shooting off the wrong the wrong stimulus um, with the experienced officers they were hitting they were hitting the role player so when they needed to be shot 75 percent of the time the newer less experienced officers were only hitting about 54 percent of the time um, and then in terms of upper uh, hits to the upper torso what we would consider mass center mass, the experienced officers were at 62% and the newer officers were at 48%. So they so, hit, they hit better and that, you know, they hit more accurately and their hits were demonstrably yes. better as well. Yes. And some we hit on, hit on the pre-show and it's been discussed before. And, and I think we could all like tie this one back to the, the quote back to Scotty Reitz is the more skill you have on demand, the longer you can let the event go before you have to respond to it. So less skill, less ability to solve the problem. You're going to have to jump on that thing sooner. More skill um, on call or reserve, the longer you can let that go. And that, that could have been the situation here because the experience officers were well ahead of identifying the problem. Yeah. One other thing that they discussed was that when the rookies made the decision to shoot, they ripped their eyes away and tried to make a hard focus on the sights and confirm the sights, whereas the, the more experienced officers went flashlight picture and got their it, hit. It was interesting to hear Dr. Vickers describe it in a couple of different ones because she talks about, and I haven't seen anyone teach this, at least not that I can recall, but she talks about the inexperienced officers running a sighting problem where they come from looking at the role player to the rear sight, to the front sight, to a traditional sight picture. Um, and that delaying their response and I'm, rather than just going right to a flash sight picture. So it was the focusing on the rear sight that was a little odd in her description. Yeah. I have never heard anyone teach focus on the rear sight, then shift your gauge to the front sight. Uh, have you heard any of that, John? Uh, I have not. I don't know if that's a British. Was a, there's also an interview available with her where she talks about how they're teaching that process. So it sounds like they may be doing that. Um, over, you know, as an alternative method of teaching over there. I am not an expert on British marksmanship principles, unfortunately. Let me ask this: Going back to your guys's uh, time with Larry Mudgett earlier, uh, later last year. And I know Larry was emphasizing the rear sight differently than what a lot of us were used to. Was there anything in there that could have carried over? 
You know, I thought about that as I was reading back through the article. Uh, and what Eric is talking about is Mr. Mudgett says that a lot of misses are rear side errors, not front side errors. And that we here we in America is the difference to apparently what they're teaching in England is the front side focus. You know, on the flash sight picture, et cetera, the front sight focus to make the shot. And that would students tend to focus so hard on the front sight they don't pay attention to the relation of the rear sight. John, do you agree with that explanation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, his, you know, basically, uh, you know, what I took from Mudget and talking about the sights is that, you know, exactly like you said, people are so focused on the front sight that they don't realize that the rear sight has been displaced in the way that's causing the marksmanship error that we're seeing. Yeah. And since we're speaking of Mr. Mudgett, he has two classes up on his schedule for next year. And if you've heard all of our previous episodes raving about his class, uh, I would get in on those in a hurry. So, I know from force on force that when the threat is close, I don't have to have a hard focus on the sights to make the hits and make acceptable hits. But as that distance opens, the requirement to focus in on the sights and get a clear sight picture becomes more prevalent and needed. And, you know, go back to Jim Cirillo's writings where he talked about using the gun itself to aim mm -hmm as a site. And I wonder if maybe our experienced officers here, they've gained enough experience and confidence with the firearm that they're capable of doing that. Whereas the rookies just weren't at that point yet. Well, I think one of the, one of the keys to shooting quickly is to know, uh, I think it was a Jerry Rester quote to know how much you have to clean up the sites. And we know from the, the study that this was, these were short range shootings. These were 15 to 20 yards, or I'm sorry, 15 to 20 feet shot, which translates from five to less than seven yards away. Those aren't shots that require a super crisp, clear, you know, equal height, equal light kind of sight picture. Right. Um, but one of the things, you know, we talk about, uh, it's a Lewinsky quote about the expert having automatic use of the tool, right? Um, as you become more technically proficient, you understand how much you have to clean up the sight picture. And it does not, to solve a five-yard problem, doesn't require that much it's just it doesn't require that much attention and i think that the key here that we haven't mentioned yet is that well where did the experts spend their time and they spent their time identifying the object in the hand that was coming their way that that was where that time was spent that's what where that expertise their higher level you know Lewinsky noted that they had a higher level of shooting technical shooting proficiency because they had that they could spend more time identifying the object in the hand and making a final decision as opposed to focusing on the mechanics of the gun. You know, and yeah, I think that goes back to experience, not only the technical experience of doing the job and having diagnosed scene after scene after scene, but also understanding what is necessary to make, you know, we can sit here right now and say, you know, making a five to seven yard shot, is not a big deal. Would we have said that fresh out of the academy? Well, and like we were talking about the drill that you ran at one of the uh, range master instructor reunions, uh, hit the eight inch circle in two seconds, mm -hmm. figure out which circle left or right, top or bottom, hit, hit that eight inch circle 
in, in two seconds, right? And how th- that degree of difficulty changed um, and where guys were able to spend their time. So I think yeah. you go back to they're tracking the hand and the object. They're going to the gun sooner. They're able to put all that stuff together in a shorter period of time frame, knowing what they're seeing. Uh, the experiment that Eric is, is referencing is, is one that I ran at a range master instructor reunion, I think in 2020. And we were at the boondocks training facility just outside of Jackson, Mississippi, where they have turning targets available. And the, the lovely boondocks training facility. I might yes, ask. Yes, it is where you can get training this year from one John Hearn. And the, the control group for Not the yet, dude. <laughs> yeah. Not talking shit. Yeah. The, the control- I, I just want to say the, stu- the the owners were students of mine at Gunsight. Then they built the facility. Go ahead, Lee. <laughs> yeah, they were inspired. Um, the control group was we had 25 participants who were all graduates of the instructor training program and put up standard, you know, range master Q targets that had the eight inch circle like an ILFE target would. And they were given a two-second exposure on the turning target, and they had to make a shot in that eight-inch circle from concealment in two seconds. And 19 of the 25 made it through that part of the experiment and then were allowed to proceed on to the second part. Um, the second part of the experiment was as I put two eight-inch targets up on each backer, one number one, one number two, and then I had the students draw uh, slips of paper that had a word on them. I think they were colors like red and black. And just before we turned the targets again, I told them that red equals one, black equals two. So if you had a strip that said red, you were supposed to shoot the number one. If you had a strip that said black, you were supposed to shoot number two. And then, you know, the targets turned and the participants had to then identify which of the two targets was their target and then make the shot. And I think it was 17 of the 19 that made it to the, the second round were able to successfully complete the drill. That's a simple decision. That's still a shoot decision. That's not a shoot, no shoot decision. They were told you will be shooting here. And so I think you go add another variable in do I shoot or not? Not just which target do I shoot, but do I shoot or not? That's going to add a whole nother element to the decision-making time that is needed. Yeah, I'll throw that out to both of you for, for your comment. Well, just, uh, just to throw a softball pitch to um, Eric, I think it goes, you can make incredibly important decisions in short time frames if you can gather the visual information. Yes. Right. This goes back to our choice of ready positions and everything else. Um, a lot of people think that, you know, you know, point one, point two, you can't really make good decisions. You can, if you have that information, you can parse it. Now, it may take you longer to, to execute the motor program than to make the decision, but you can make, inc- you can gather information to make those critical decisions very, very quickly if the visual field isn't cluttered and you actually take the time to do that. Eric? I'm just agreeing with John. He was doing fine. We were having too much fun. Larry King softball to you right there, man. Well, I guess this will be a good point to discuss uh, Avini's work on ready positions. So Avini didn't really hit the ready positions as much as he hit behavior. Okay. So the way his study was, was run theater students, 
told to bring a couple of different changes of clothes. Uh, punk clothing, normal clothing, business attire. So they photographed, they filmed them dressed in this stuff and they had them turning around with nothing in their hand, turning around with a firearm in their hand. And what they noticed when they were filming the stuff was that when they had a gun in their hand, they were getting a very different type of turn, a crouch and turn that was very aggressive on some people's parts, as opposed to how they would turn with an empty hand or a non-weapon in their hand. So they, in addition to clothing, what was in the hand, it was the, the nature of the turn. And then they overlaid this with, you're going to a mugging, you're going to a robbery, you're going to a burglary, I think it was. And so that's what the officers were told. They looked at about 300 officers or so from several different departments, ran them through this, and we're looking at what, who was getting shot. And what, they weren't getting shot based on race. Um, it was, and it wasn't even so much the clothing as it was the nature of the call the officers were, were being told they were going to. So go back to John's dispatch priming. And then the behavior of the suspect, the subject, when they were encountered by the officers. So the more aggressive the turn, the heightened the level of the call, the more likely that person was going to get shot at or shot by the officer in the simulator. Agencies that had, one or two agencies had some really good force-on-force scenario-based training much fewer problems with the officers shooting people who didn't need to be shot. There was another agency that had a very restrictive policy on when they could draw. So the hypothesis was the officers thought they were well behind the curve on this because they were having to wait so long in order to draw the gun that they were panicking and it was creating shootings that didn't need to happen because rather than getting the officers to where they were at least even with, if not ahead of, they're the subject they were dealing with, right? They were forced to be well behind them and very reactive. That's, that's, that's the baseline on it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's suspect behavior driving the outcomes. What was the study that was on the ready positions and mistake of fact shootings? So re- that one came out fall of 2020. I believe the guy's last name was Terry. Could have been Perry. <laughs> Off, just right now, I'm not, I'm not hitting on it, but they looked at three where the three ready positions pointed it on the upper chest pointed it at the base of the sternum pointed it at the belly button now all three of those right now are going to put you in a position at least in california where it's a reportable use of force because you've got mu- muzzle covering meat it didn't go down to the ready positions that we're more comfortable with their muzzles not on the body at all the Role players were turning with either a firearm in their hand or a cell phone in their hand. That was the difference. Every time the role players turned with a gun in their hand, they got shot regardless of who was in the study, regardless of where the ready the muzzle was oriented. When they put the cell phone in their hand, high chest was 60, 61% of the time they got shot with the cell phone in their hand. Bottom of the sternum was low 50-ish percent. They were going to get shot, but just dropping down the muzzle down to the belly button, saw him getting shot right about 30% of the time. So by moving one's ready position from sighted and on the upper chest to the belly button, we were over 100% reduction in mistake of fact shootings. Um, Their time was a factor on it. And with either of the two higher ready positions, those shots were going down range at about 0.50, 0.51. 
going down to the belly button, it was taped for when the shots were fired, they were going off at about 0.62 seconds. So a 10th of a second difference between the ready positions, but significant decrease in the number of shots fired mistakenly. John, you have anything smart to say? Uh, I was just going to chime in that, you know, I want to remind, you know, we have a lot of uh, private citizens that might be in, you know, in the aftermath of a shooting. You need to understand that these, we're talking about highly trained officers here and they're still in the light of the circumstances making decisions that are, that are incorrect, right? So we've got the British study that shows even the experienced officers were making an 18% mistake rate. Uh, I'm familiar with the Vini study that uh, Eric was talking about. Uh, if I recall right, the error rates on the officers involved in that study ranged greatly. The worst department made shot the wrong people about half the time, but even the department that had the extensive force on force shooting was still making a mistake of fact shooting about a quarter of the time. Again, because officers are having to make a decision based on the information they have at hand and the, uh, the movements by the subject. So, you know, when everybody talks about how they're going to handle responding officers and stuff like that, the last thing you want to have in your hands is a gun when officers are arriving on scene. Because uh, even when you have basically SWAT level trained guys trying to make split second decisions, there's still, you know, uh, you know, 18% right, uh, rounds up to 20% or one in five in my math really fast. So um, we t- again to see and see it again and again that mis- uh, in the lights of the compressed time frames these decisions are being made in, um, mistakes still get made and you need to figure out the best ways not to get shot by the police uh, if you're carrying a gun out in public. And I will, s- one of the things is that it's collectively, we have to get, get better at this stuff. The good outcomes are almost rare enough now that they stand out. So there was an active shooter in Salt Lake City at a mall several years ago. And there was an off-duty cop there with his wife. I think she was a dispatcher. He had a single stack pistol and he ran to the gunfire while the responding on-duty officers were coming as well. And there, and it was talked a lot about, uh, talked about it a lot at the time was because the, uh, even though he had nothing on him to identify him as a cop, he didn't have a badge that he could pull out or hanging around his neck or anything else. There was a recognition by the responding officers that this guy was, was a cop, not a threat. And they continued to work together to solve the problem. That one's so rare that that got a lot of coverage. I wouldn't want to be in the situation where that's what I was depending on. Yeah. I know that, the FLETC active shooter instructor program spends a great deal of time on officers linking up at the incident and to avoid blue on blue shootings because of that very thing is we're already keyed into this is an active shooter situation. Uh, so everybody is prepared to take act or they should be anyway. Um, you know, they're already keyed up. They're in the mode of these force will probably have to be used at that point and then all of a sudden you confront someone else that's armed you know, we need to be training that in into our situation as well and then perfect segue back to the private citizen with john there of you know now you've been in a shooting you know you're the good guy but the responding cops don't know you are right. any other comments on that guys no, law enforcement, unfortunately, has has had its fair share of failures on that. Um, one nearby to me involved 
officers from the same investigations unit getting separated on an entry and one officer shooting his supervisor because he saw a gun and he shot the body attached to the gun, not realizing it was his boss. It was fatal. It was fatal. No, it it was fatal. There were a lot of issues there. Um, It's, it's nothing but straight up tragic. Yeah. But that was cops who work with each other. Wow. Not getting it right. You know, I think back to an incident where we used to be part of a regional drug task force and the regional drug task force was serving, uh, executing an arrest, excuse me, a search warrant on a, on a residence. And we had a briefing on how we were going to execute the search warrant. Well, there were two members of the task force that were not present at the briefing because they were conducting surveillance on the scene. And our plan was we had a certain avenues of approach. We were all going to take, and that worked fine when all of us stayed in the avenues approach that we were going to take. Well, the two guys that were the surveillance, when they saw us begin to execute the approach, they jumped out of the car they were in to join in. And all of a sudden, here are two guys come running up, you know, guns in hand to be part of the execution of the warrant. Like, oh, who were those guys? And yeah. After that, we instituted a thing that everybody that's going to take part in the approach must be in the briefing. And if you were on the scene doing surveillance, you were not allowed to be part of the approach. Thoughts? When I was working, when I worked narcotics, and that was 20 years ago, um, we all had football jerseys we kept under the front seat of the vehicle so that if we had to get out and take any kind of enforcement action that wasn't pre-planned, we could be identifiable fairly quickly as, as the police, because the goal was not to look like the police, right? right? But when we were doing anything pre-planned, because we were part of a federal task force, our stuff was, I won't say it was overmarked, but it was real difficult to not tell we were the police from about 348 degrees around us, right? Uh, to include bright yellow patches on the forearms that said we were police because hopefully that was close enough to the gun that it would prevent problems. Yeah. John. Well, no, I, uh, when I do my big eight hour talk, I spend almost an hour talking about how not to get shot by the police. And there's just, there's all these numerous examples out there. You know, there was uh, the FBI lost an agent uh, working with a local SWAT team at a bank. He was wearing the classic, you know, raid jacket with police fbi on and still managed to get shot so you know i think the average person out there that hasn't been in law enforcement has no appreciation for the time frames these decisions have to be made in where you know we look at dr daryl ross's work on gunfight winners you know most of you know all the decisions were made in less than two seconds and a lot of them were made in less than one second and eric you know i thought that was really interesting to hear the difference between a 0.5 and a 0.62 is the good street versus a bad shoot you know you uh, incredibly compressed timeframes in which these decisions are made. And again, they're not being made on explicit observations of seeing an object in the, you know, which object that is, they're looking at the motions involved, you know, it's just, it's pattern recognition. Um, and, you know, the sad reality is um, we're seeing again and again, you know, we'll see people committing suicide by cop and what they're essentially doing is emulating the pattern of drawing a gun. And, uh, you know, from what these studies tell me is that even under the best scenarios, um, there's no way to make that determination in a time frame that isn't effectively playing Russian roulette for the officer. 
there's a recent video out of Nevada Highway Patrol where, a, I don't know if John's seen it or not, but it was yeah. a suicide by cop situation on a shoulder during a daytime traffic stop. Dude does a bad guy does an over-exaggerated draw, like from the four o'clock position behind the hip, gets shot at, goes down, comes back up, repeats the process as a second officer arrives on scene and gets shot again. So it's even in that situation, right? He still got this. He managed to trigger the same response from a second officer. And then there was the incident in Colorado this past year where the Mm -hmm. armed citizen took out an active shooter, but then went and picked up the active shooter's rifle and was holding it when the officers arrived on scene and tragically shot him. Yeah. And that one, I know we had a lot of discussion on that locally in some classes where okay let's yes it's tragic not going to argue it there's no way there's no way to make it good for anybody involved but what do you have for spot report of a guy who's just killed a cop who's got a rifle you roll in on scene and there's a dude standing there with a rifle what you don't get is what happened in between that call and your arrival but it's there All right. Anything we need to go back and, and finish up with on the four science study? I was just going to throw this out there. You know, um, for years, we've tried to find research that technical proficiency matters. And there were some uh, earlier studies, one based within New York, New York Police Department, uh, one based out of Miami, trying to uh, correlate qualification scores with performance on the street. The New York study was completely found no correlation the Miami study, you know, they always considered the sample to be small. They didn't see any, um, they didn't think it was any huge differences. The one thing that they did note, though, was that the officers that shot better on um, qualifications did not miss the bad guy completely as much, which in my mind, in a world where there's only one safe pl- resting place for bullets, that's, um, that's still a significant difference. What we're starting to see now with this, with the gay study and the commentary that the uh, expert officers who performed better had a higher level of technical proficiency, as well as the, uh, the, the Navy Surface Warfare article that was published in Nature, we're actually starting to get some um, better concrete evidence that higher levels of technical shooting with the pistol um, actually do have real-world benefits. That's one of those things that we've always debated, we always thought to be the case, but I think we're starting to build that compelling case for that now. Eric? I, I know about the nature study that John's referring to. I, I haven't read it enough to comment on that one specifically, but I think we've got the data to back up the anecdote, the anecdotal to back up the perceptions uh, about that technical skill. So now we're in a place where we can start to take the research and combine it with what we thought. Yeah. And, and it just seems logical. You know, that the better skill that someone has, the better they're going to be able to perform. I just, it's where those, those metrics are as to what is good enough is, is the age old question. Yes. And going, going back to John's chart, you know, how far to the right do you go before it's okay? I'm going to let this simmer. I'm going to let this stuff simmer while I work on the other things, identification, recognition, 
um, to where I'm not just working on the pure, and I hate to use the word speed because of the context, right? Yeah. But it's not just a pure speed of the problem. It's picking up the problem three, four seconds in advance. So I think it was Murphy who had a post recently about he's not the dude to teach you to take a quarter second off your draw. He's the dude to teach you to draw three or four seconds earlier. And that's clearly borne out in the four science study that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so obviously for the cop, it's easy to go out and get the force on force train. Well, it's not easy, but it's easier than the private sector market would be. What advice do we have for private citizens as far as training they should be seeking out here? Uh, any, for starters, anything that's going to make them, force them to make decisions under stress. If they can get to competent force on force training, right? Not just paintball wars. Uh, I think back to some of the scenario stuff we did that I was exposed to early in my career where it was very much about kill all the students, mm -hmm. right? That wasn't competent stuff. So I haven't experienced Carl Ren stuff, but I hear nothing but very good things about it. Craig Douglas's stuff has gotten, well, from experience, it's phenomenal. The way he scripts the scenarios and controls them, things along those lines. More places are getting simulators in. Right. So if you can't necessarily get force on force, but you can start getting time in a fat simulator or something with judgment, especially if it includes the ability to bring in OC or some of these other tools. Absolutely jump on that. We've got a local kind of concealed carry uh, handgun license or organization that has their own simulator that they're running with students. Rock on. That's awesome. Um, and then just try to work from there. Yeah, and work from there. You're going to have to find somebody who's got well put together and presented force on force stuff curriculum for them to work through. John, do you know anyone who has a class that has anything to do with decision making with the time? <laughs> so, well, what I would offer is, you know, my cognitive pistol class is the lower tier of that. You know, uh, my cognitive pistol class is going to make you think with the gun in your hand, but you're still not going to get the mental math creation. That's where I think the, the, the force on force and the simulators are so important is it gives you the visual information to um, build the mental maps you're going to need to perform well. You know, I've got a class that will make you think with the pistol in your hand. I can take people who think they're really, really good shots and wrote a lot of that performance with cognitive load. But the gold standard for this stuff just simply is force on force training. Uh, Carl Wren was just mentioned um, for years. Carl ran uh, scenarios for us at TACCON. Uh, I've been through Carl's Airsoft, uh, his force on force instructor program. It's a great program. Uh, you know, as already touched on, force on force can be done really well or it can be done really poorly. And there seems to be no middle road here. There, there doesn't seem to be any kind of mediocre force on force. It's either really good or really bad. And I'm hesitant to, you know, um, recommend anybody I haven't personally trained with. With that said, when we mentioned boondocks, they do have a program down there. Uh, that would probably be another possible good venue. I can't, I haven't vetted it personally yet, but that does seem to be something uh, worth looking into. Um, we've already mentioned video simulators. Um, if you go to any of the big cities now, everybody has at least, you know, the, the $5 million range running around. They always have some video simulator. 
Uh, what I'm actually really excited about, I've got a request for a teeny and I'm working for it, is the problem with video simulators has always been they're very expensive and they take a lot of infrastructure. They require rooms and stuff like that. Uh, we're on the verge of virtual reality with like an Oculus or something like that. Uh, yes. There are systems out there that do that for law enforcement. And uh, I've got, like I said, I've got a request for a teeny on one. And I think that's going to be the big game changer just because, you know, we have a, the fats we train on with the local PD is a $110,000 system. The VR systems are going to be, because there is no hardware you know, requirements are going to be a lot cheaper. So for the armed citizen, uh, give it another year or two. And I think that VR that's being pushed out right now into the law enforcement community will become down in price. But, you know, ultimately you need to see the situations, you need to see the problems you need to solve so you can start to develop those solutions. It's the creation of the mental maps that we talk about. And force on force is the, the gold standard for that because, again, you have a pain penalty in there that, that ramps people up as well. Um, stepping down from there, you know, uh, the video simulators, whether it's a simulator or VR is good. And then, you know, any class that forces you to think with a gun in your hand is going to be good. I've got my cognitive pistol class, but if you look at stuff like uh, Will Petty's vehicle CQB or some of the shoot house stuff that uh, like they do up at Alliance, Ohio, those are all classes that make you think with a gun in your hand and emphasize decision making. So, you know, any of those are going to be um, probably much more useful than taking another tenth off your draw stroke, especially if it's, you know, 1.5 or below. Yeah. In addition, if you can find a way to set it up, if you can't get to the other things, right? If you can throw in judgmental shooting drills in dry fire or live fire, um, if if time allows and interest allows in my classes at TACCON, I'm going to be running judgmental shooting drills to finish it off just to, sh just to give the folks that come to take that block something to walk away with that they can throw into their training. And they'll be different ones for the two classes it won't be the same drill for the classes but at least they've got a gun in their hand and they're having or on them and they're going to have to make some decisions about employing that firearm getting it out whether they shoot or not and and how they solve the shooting problem so that's, yeah. that's another option but it's farther down on the chart because you already know you're going to be shooting yeah um Carl Wren has already been mentioned. I, I've been through his class on the student level, and it was exceptionally well done. I know he has an instructor class coming up. I want to say it's in April uh, at his place just outside of Austin, Texas. And there's a student level that will be run in conjunction with that. So check krtraining.com, uh, their schedule, and look for that. I think he, it's uh, like – something problems number two or something like that there's like a two-day version of, of the student level of the course and we've already mentioned john murphy's name john's class on concealed carry advanced skills and tactics uh, that's an excellent excellent class that goes into a lot of the decision making processes that that you'll have to do uh I, if i dare may pat my you know took my own horn here my pistol craft class goes into many of those things i've got one of those scheduled uh right now in kalamazoo michigan in june so there are some out there uh i know john you know claude warner eric do you know claude yeah you know one of claude's criticisms of of training is that so much of it is nothing but firing squad training because the students we stand there in in a line and we just we're just drawing and shooting targets over and over. We're trying to get better at doing that, but that's there's nothing else involved in it other than just that technical skill. And I think one of the things from the four science study was 
that traditional academy training is not training people at the speed of a gunfight. Right. And that was something that Lewinsky does comment on in both of those articles that we kicked around on the front end. It kind of led to this one is that it's not at the speed of the event. Um, I know, I think one of the things from Claude that I've taken from him is referring to it as don't shoot, shoot, rather than shoot, don't shoot, reprioritizing Mm -hmm. how we're explaining it. Um, This, we're not talking low light, but I use his material in combination with Tom Gibbons material as kind of polar opposites on the low light stuff on, on the front end of those classes to talk about the differences in it for decent normal human beings. Claude's done a lot of work on the negative outcomes, right? When, when our community is screwing it up because we're rushing it or we're not, we're not getting enough information to make a competent decision on those problems. I think Claude's done a hell of a job on that, on gathering that stuff and putting it out there. Yeah. I think Claude's work also shows that once there is a bad decision made, it creates a cascade of bad decisions. You know, for instance, um, the old, I'll shoot anyone that I see in my house and individual shoots his teenage daughter who's sneaking back in. Yeah. Yep. Just out of the, that just happened within the last week somewhere. I can't, I can't yeah. recall where it was. I think it was down in Texas, but yeah. Uh, in this, in this uh, real life incident, the father shoots the teenage daughter. That's, that's, that's come back into the house unexpectedly. Yeah. Uh, turns on the lights after he's done the shooting, realizes it's his daughter. And instead of, you know, trying to stabilize her while the ambulance arrives, he throws her in the car and starts trying to drive her to medical care and is driving extremely erratically ends up crashing. You know, we had a bad decision made and now it's hard to reorientate, reorient and get back to good decision-making. It just becomes a cascade. It's like when you're at Rogers and you miss the first plate, you know, you don't suddenly calm down and get the other plates. I'm not doing well. Let me, let me make mistakes faster. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing I'll throw out there, uh, I forgot to mention this because it, it really is a solid program for somebody that's looking for something that's less expensive is uh, the image-based decision-making that uh, the Hills have done. Uh, for, I think it has maybe an entry point of a hundred bucks. It's, you know, cards and tools to help you do make these decisions in dry practice. Uh, most of us aren't going to be buying a $110,000 fat system, but that image-based decision-making program they have is a great gateway into the whole thing. You know, the whole issues we're trying to address here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they're teaching that uh, all over the country. Uh, I know they're teaching some instructor level versions of that and some student levels. And so that would be the complete combatant.com. And does the image-based decisions thing, does it have its own web address as well? It has its own website. Yeah. Okay. I know that you can probably get to it from complete combatant. Uh, anything else on, on that? Not yeah. Enough top of my head. One thing that I was struck by, and reading the four science articles that were started off discussing tonight was that part two, the first three paragraphs in it are okay. All of you are coming to an imp- incorrect conclusion from part one that we're endorsing point shooting. That's not what we're saying because we're not saying the people point shot. Yeah, we're saying that, yeah, the people with more experience and training 
just simply perform better. Right. Well, well I think the. Go ahead, John. No, I said I, it's not. It's not clearly stated in the article, but I think what we had because those things were so extensively recorded is I, I would, you know, be very comfortable saying that all the shots that were fired were fired with the gun in the eye target line. I think what we're debating about is whether you're focusing on front sight specifically or just using a flash sight picture. I think they would, you know, if, if people have been doing quote unquote point shooting, we would know about it. But I think all the shots fired were with the gun high in the eye target line. Uh, so point shooting was not a, you know, a factor in these, is a, you know, seen as a valid methodology. That's not what the studies were saying. The gun, the gun is up in the eye target line. It's just a matter of how, what you're paying attention to when it's up there. Yeah, the writing, the writing in the first article talks about focusing on the rear sight, focusing on the front sight, then getting that full sight picture for the inexperienced officers versus the experienced officers who were seeing some, some reference point, be it a flashlight picture, be it the shape of the gun, and then working and solving the problem from there, given the distances that were involved. And that might have been what drove the, the point shooting complaints, concerns. I think it comes down to, to, to use my favorite term, is it's about automaticity. In a nutshell, the experts had automaticity when it came to using the, the gun effectively, and the novices didn't. They had not you know, trained enough. They did not have the, the mental maps to have automaticity with the gun yet. And if you have to spend any effort, mental effort, thinking about the gun and the whole shooting process, you lose very finite cognitive abilities to focus on all the other things that are going to be really important for you. Speaking of automaticity, you know, all, we all drove Ford Crown Victoria police interceptors back in the day. I have not had a Crown Vic as my assigned vehicle since late 2010, early 2011. Oh, I am so sorry. I, I've been driving other things since then. My government vehicle is in the shop right now, and I am driving probably a 2010, 2011 Crown Victoria while my truck is being repaired and it's a marked unit and i rolled up on a wreck today and i'm in a marked unit i'm i'm getting out to help of course i would have done marked unit as well but you know obviously i'm in a marked unit i said roll up on this wreck i've got to turn on the lights i've got to start traffic control making sure everybody's okay i had to actually stop and consciously think where is the light switch to turn on the blue lights in this whereas in the truck i drive every day i would just reach out and hit the button was was that the Unitrol or the stock Crown Vic controls? Because if the Unitrols are getting rewired every time we get to a yeah. different vehicle, that's where that problem comes in from. Right. Well, but it's like, okay, where is the control box in yeah. this car? Yep. And and it was even funnier than that. It's like, where's the door handle for me to open the door to get out? You know, and when I drove a Crown Vic every day, that's something I didn't have to think about. Yeah. And it's it's just a simple simple you know physical skills we're talking about here but there was such a drastic change in what i do from my normal normal daily environment that i was completely befuddled well and it goes back to the guys that have the the concealed carry gun of the day that rotation i'll remember what gun i'm carrying or i remember what positions it's in and stuff like that it's like no no you won't it just it does not happen that way right yeah i've just as I was doing that all the day, I said, you know, if Herm was watching this, he would be rolling just hysterically laughing because I was laughing at myself as I was doing it. it well, was that I'm laughing at you right now. 
<laughs> and, and so is so is Eric. I'm just uh, wishing I could have been there with a video camera in either instance. I, I actually wish there was a video camera there too, because I would have great fun watching that. Uh, our friend Craig Douglas posed a question, and that is when did the emphasis on training go to the hard front sight focus from a soft focus imposed on the, the target of the threat? I thought that was interesting when Craig put that up um, in light of Jer your interview with Jerry McCowan, mm -hmm. where Jerry talked about consciously in the early 80s, realizing that what Cooper was talking about was shifting from looking at the sites to focusing on the front site um, during the problem. And it'd be, I'd like to, I got to pick Jerry's brain about it next time I work with him about where does the flash site picture come into that, right? Is that, is that a focus on the front site when it flashes in or is it a, that soft focus? Um, so Jerry talked about it being in the early eighties. I'd like to know what the older PPC shooters had to say, the, the older bullseye shooters, where was that fixation? When you look at like the photos of border patrol shooting at B8s on silhouettes in the twenties, where was that? front where was that visual attention in the 60s and 70s at Camp Perry and the and the state level matches I, I'm genuinely curious because I don't know I'm just speculating here but I think that a lot of you know police firearms training evolved from the only context they had at the time which was classic Camp Perry bullseye shooting at which time you had to hard focus on the front like there was like this all or nothing you either did the FBI crouch or you hard focused on the you know front site there was no middle ground I think, you know, we can, I think we can largely credit competition shooting with that is we've learned to use just enough of the sites to get the hits we need. Um, if you go to, I have not been to a Steger class myself, but I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have, and his whole, you know, point is that you don't have to hard focus on the sites. Um, you want to use just enough to get there. And I, I you know, um, I've turned 50, I'm 51 now, and I've noticed a major degradation in my eyes. And I have no, uh, a lot of my stuff up close and fast now, I don't have hard, sharp, you know, focus on the front sight. But as long as I have a visually obtrusive front sight, I can still do really good work without that hard focus. And I think that um, it's a matter of learning how little sights you need, you know, the, again, to use the Russian quote, how much to clean up the sights before you break the shot. I can remember taking a Pat McNamara class, took a couple of them about 10, 11 years ago, and Pat talking about put the center up, put the near blur in the center of the far blur and kind of acknowledging that you may not get that perfectly crisp sight picture, but work with those blurs, kind of like a prelude to a soft focus. And I know after a few years of shooting the dots now, I can, I can work much easier with a soft focus on the irons. Like they're in alignment and they're there and I can, and I can go to work. Now I wouldn't try to shoot a B8 for score that way. Right. And think I'd be competitive, but I can do work that way. Yeah. I think as we gain experience and as we gain confidence, the attention we have to give to the sites, there's lesser need for that. And right. so that we're able to accomplish that soft focus. And I think that goes right back to the four science study is the guys that had the confidence and the technical skill, they knew their attention did not have to be as hard on the sites as the people to whom the whole gun thing is completely new to. Yeah. 
And because and because they weren't spending visual time on the sites, they had time to better identify the problem. And I think it's just a matter of having this is the problem with just attending an academy and then shooting twice a year is you're never going to develop these, you know, the comfort levels with these tools. I can remember um, I don't get to shoot IDPA like I used to, but I would go and run a stage and the only shots I could recall were the headshots because I could perfectly almost always deliver two to the body to the eight inch ring, almost always down zeros with, with, you know, just minimal attention to the sights, but every headshot required visual attention. And that's where you have to, you know, figure out, you know, when you need a soft focus, when you need a hard focus. Um, and there is something to be said, I think, uh, from the bulky Dobbs kind of perspective of I'm going to err on cleaning up the sites a little bit more when I'm trying to solve real world problems where there's real consequences to misses. But, you know, you can do good work without um, hard focus on the front site, assuming you're trying to solve the right kind of shooting problem with that solution. I noticed something about vision today as well when I was out helping with that rack. For some reason, the state of Georgia has gone to a much smaller font on the driver's license. <laughs> and I don't understand that. If you hold it further away, it's more legible, I'm finding. Mississippi has done the same thing. I may have to get a copy of the radio traffic because I was calling in the tag number, and I, uh, the license number, and I said, and I think the last number is, a, it's either a six or an eight. <laughs> Eric, you seem to be enjoying that. <laughs> or are you reliving uh, moments? Uh, reliving moments. I mean, I can remember what it was like. Oh, that street sign's a little hard to read. Oh, yeah. that license plate's a little hard to read. Oh, they're both a lot harder to read than they used to be. Yeah, I remember when I started this, I could read a card tag from like four car lengths away. And now if I'm not like bumper to bumper with it, I can't read the tag. Um, oh yeah oh this time marching on thing it's uh, uh gary greco has pointed out to me that the geezer factor on the show here is uh is tipping more and more to the geezer scale and uh you know it, it, i can't argue with that because i've gone hard geezer myself uh tom givens called me a boomer yesterday <laughs> <laughs> well that's why i had to keep david cagle around because yes. you know, he's got a, a appeal to that younger demographic he, he's the only hope for the younger demographic on the show right yeah you, yeah, you got to keep cagle around just for that if nothing else all right um anything else on what we've been kicking around tonight well kind of go back to what what's what spurred this whole thing was video with ken hackathorn and bill wilson that apparently was several months old and it seems like something that, that Mr. Hackathorn said kind of about red dots kind of spurred a bunch of stuff out there. He used thousand to 2000 rounds and I might've used 2000 to 2000 repetitions of the presentation and that, that might've cut it down, but that conversation then dove off like a lot of things online do and down into rabbit holes that's what led to the gaze study you know from core science that we were talking about um i think ken's right on the repetitions i just think people heard what they wanted to hear it didn't necessarily process what ken and i'm not going to try to put words in his mouth but what i think ken was trying to say what i also point out is that ken hackathorn was a very early adopter of the red dot on the carbine is my yep. understanding. And he was around to see the earlier versions of red dots on carbines that didn't work. So I think he is in an excellent position to sit here and go, hey, 
you know, the first couple of generations of these things don't work out, okay? And they may not be worth investing in quite yet. And there's also, you know, when it comes to the red dot, there's a, there's a return on investment. You know, if you don't have, you know, you know, great means and stuff like that, you just need to protect your house and loved ones. I mean, do you need a, you know, a 900 or $1,200 red dot setup pistol, or can you buy a police trade-in Glock for 350 and do really good work with that? I would hate for the message to be out there that you can't do anything with that police trade-in Glock 19 or, or God forbid a model 19, you know, um, that you need some, you know, not, you know, I think $900 is kind of the entry point into the red dot optic world. I just don't think that's necessarily what you need to um, be telling folks. Well, and- unfortunately with, between COVID and the civil unrest last year, a lot of those $350 guns don't exist, right? Those trade-ins have been bought up. The the wheel guns have been bought up. Like we've kind of been kicking around and and talking about. And so a lot of those entry-level things aren't there. I've got that Turkish shotgun that I'm working with that I got to finish off on the the last batch of slugs through it, but it, it wouldn't necessarily be my first choice, but I'm on the far side of 250 rounds of this thing and it's still running. You know, I lost a screw off of it, which lost, which cost the optics base, but I can still run the sites that are on it. Um, it's just an awful long stock. I want to take a look at that Smith SDVE. You know, they're kind of the, like, the, I don't know, the, the product improved Sigma, whatever it was, yeah. because that's a gun that you can still buy for somewhere between 350 and 400. And is that a viable gun? Right. And, you know, you take that with the, the Bushnell red dot on it, or maybe like Crimson Trace red dot. You know, nothing that's trying to compete with Aimpoint, but a, is it a good, decent one, right? I can use that gun with the irons, probably. Um, if I can put a, a less expensive red dot on it, now do I have something that gives me all the capability, but I'm not as heavily invested in it? I don't know. Right. You know, one of the things that everybody's preaching in the red dot training is that your presentation has to be absolutely perfect for the dot to be where it needs to be. I have it on pretty good authority that the point that Mr. Hackathorn was making was, okay, for the people that that aren't training to that proficiency, that that may be a problem for them. And, on some authority, huh? <laughs> yeah, pretty good authority. Uh, all right. I had a, a phone conversation with Mr. Hackathorn earlier this week in which he referenced the video. And uh, Eric, I got to tell you, being able to talk on the phone with Ken Hackathorn, it must be what Hearn feels like whenever he gets to talk to one of us. <laughs> wow. Well played, sir. Well played. I think I'm just going to go cry now. Wow, that was just brutal. You, you should go cry, but we're going to take away your T-shirt. <laughs> and, and after 10 o'clock, Lee gets mean. <laughs> Well, I'm all hopped up on andouille sausage, so it's, uh, you know, it is one of those nights. You know, and, and that makes a valid point that, that he's saying is, we've all seen the, the, the cops on the range that they go out for the annual call and they pull their pistol out and there's a dust bunny and a french fry on the front side. You know, are those the guys that are going to maintain a red dot, make sure that the screws are properly torqued, that the battery is, is, is fresh, that it's properly zeroed? And that they're going to know the, the difference and that their presentation is going to be ironed in. The, the, the person who, as he referenced, shoots a Glock because they don't have the ability to maintain a 1911. 
are they going to be able to maintain the red dot in working order? No. So is, is that the best choice for them? That's where you well, guys you know, answer. Yeah. Well, well no, I was we going to say, you know, you, you can get a couple <laughs> of cases of ammo for the cost of a red dot, right? You used to be able to. And, you know, the yeah. question is, what is a better return on that investment? Yeah. It's no, and we've all seen cops that are the lowest common denominator in everything, mm-hmm. right? They couldn't write a report if we didn't give them a pencil or a word processor. Okay, right. they, you know, they 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 wouldn't go out and spend the time learning how to take crime scene photos if somebody didn't you know sit down with them. Right. So it's not surprising that we're going to have issues with the dots, right? That's why we have to have drivers training. Um, not wrong. He's not wrong right. at all. Well, and another point with all of this is that the people that took what was said in that video and like ran to the furthest extreme, I think they did it because they wanted to have something to argue. And so they interpreted what he said the way they wanted to interpret it so they they could disagree with it. And all right, the people listening to this podcast or watching on YouTube, the people that are on some of the better gun social media sites the people who show up for more than one training class a year or more than one training class ever we're the high end of the consumer if the three of us were golfers we'd be sitting here talking about the three drivers that were introduced in 2021 that made the most difference or i I switched to this golf ball because it got me another 10 yards on my drive if we were jeep guys you know, I, I spent all weekend taking off the accessories that I spent a weekend last month putting on because this new one came out. And so I had to swap it. Version 2.0. Right. <laughs> we are a very, 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 very minuscule portion of the consumer market and of the end user. And I think that the people that get so bent out of shape on stuff like that, they forget that. They tend to think that they are the norm when they're not the norm. Uh, Some of the guys that were in that threat, I attended Rogers with them. Okay, that's a high-level shooting school that a very small percentage of the shooting population ever gets to attend. All right, if you're to the point that you're doing that, you're not the guy that's buying the 350 SD9. Right. Right. John? No, I just, uh, you know, Greg Elephants had a great article that he published um, about showing up at a public range, and there's a woman trying to learn to, you know, use her pistol because she has a serious death threat against her right now. Mm-hmm. And I would hate to think that, you know, and, and Greg ends up helping her and working her through that. Um, because she really needed that stuff. And I would hate to tell that person that they need a $1,500 pistol to defend themselves and their kids. Um, you know, and I would also point out is that, you know, um, Bill Wilson and Ken Hackathorn have seen a round or two go down range. They've seen some evolution of technique and equipment along the way. Um, and just like, you know, I think a lot of us value Tom Gibbons opinions for the exact same reason is like, I would not dismiss anything they say lightly. Yeah. You know, the other thing that struck me was in that one discussion where, you know, the study and all were linked was basically the notion that was put forth that, that Mr. Hackathorn hadn't put forth the work with the dot to be able to form a valid opinion. And that's just freaking laughable. He's 
one of the most foremost trainers in the history of firearms training. He's been all over the world training special forces or the equivalent in other countries and in our own country. What makes you think he hasn't seen plenty of duck guns? And even that video he even talked about the four guns that he's working with. And then they they go on the fact that they're, these are two old guys yelling at clouds, basically, and they've given up innovating. All right, well, part of that discussion was, okay, the SIG 320 and the SIG 365 and the stuff that Bill Wilson's got coming out for it. Um, I just remember, wasn't what, three years ago, four years ago, that the EDC-9 was like the most innovative pistol to hit the market, and since as he readily gave credit for the, the SIG 365 with that magazine design revolutionizing subcompact guns, Wilson's has now come out with, you know, a subcompact that has a similar magazine capacity and design to that. And then they talked about the alien pistol. Yep. And so these, these are guys that are not paying attention to the trends and not going out and putting in the work. I don't get that. That's just not, that's not feasible. So how much of that is a lack of understanding of the history? Uh, it's not the business. It's not the profession. I, yeah. the, the evolution we've gone through on defensive firearms, even if you just go back to the start of IPSC in the mid seventies, mm-hmm. right. And, and folks not understanding how we got where we got. Um, and we see it in law enforcement, right? We, at least one person in this conversation may have been guilty when they were a baby cop, which is thinking that like there has been nothing going on before them, um, or sitting in a room full of veterans and going, yeah, the dude was really old. He was like 40. (laughs) Didn't go over well, um, But how much of it's that, right? Ken's not on, and I don't know if he is or isn't, but if he's not on Instagram, does any of his stuff matter? Right. Right. And I'm not saying that about us, but, you know, some of the folks that are involved in these discussions, that may be more what needs to be talked about sometimes, is how how did we get here from there? Uh, Just before the world ended in 2020, I went to a... uh, firearms instructor class and there were a bunch of guys from an agency there and they were given a guy grief for being like this ancient veteran like every joke they made about the guy was how old he was and everything and so finally i was like hey man how long you've been on the job and he told me and i've been on three years longer than him (laughs) yeah well and, you know, a few years ago, I was sitting in my office with a couple of, you know, 20-year types guys, and I looked at them and said, guys, you remember when we were all fairly new at this, and we used to sit around and talk about the old guys? And like, yeah, I said, well, guess what? They're doing that now, but we're the old guys they're talking about. And Ashton Ray put something up this week on his Facebook page, like, earn your opinion. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. If, if Ken Hackathorn hasn't earned his opinion, then who has? And with that kind of goes an understanding or the need for an understanding of the way the world was for those folks. 
Um, we just, we had one of our retired sergeants pass away last week, week before. Um, and Mac, well, well into his seventies, if not into his eighties. Um, he was a longtime gunsmith, very close with some of the older guys in the industry. Roy Huntington and I were corresponding mm-hmm. about Max, Max passing. But one of the things that's come up is an article that Masada Yub wrote about a shooting that Mac was involved in where he shot a burglary suspect running away at 172 oh. yards. Yeah. Okay. This is pre-Tennessee versus Garner. <laughs> Very pre-Tennessee versus Garner, right? But he shot a burglary suspect at 172 yards. Another shooting. With a about, pistol. Let's be clear. With, with a, a pistol. With a revolver. <laughs> Not, with yeah. a Smith & Wesson revolver. Um, and there was another shooting that that Mac wrote up that was an American handgunner. Uh, sorry, it was a pursuit that happened. And I'm looking at the details of the pursuit. I know the roads because like, I drove them and I supervised guys who were in pursuits on those same roadways. And it's like, yeah, this would not have gone over in, in today's environment, right? But yet here's two amazing stories from the 70s and 80s about just how much things have changed in the profession in that time. And you may not, you may sit there and go, you can't, it's, it's illegal. It's immoral. It's this, it's that, it's whatever to figure 172 yard shot. Realize it was a very different era. Number mm-hmm. one, know what the laws were and then think about the technical competence necessary to pull that off. Uh, you know, prior to the Supreme court, what 74 was Garner? Garner was 85. 85. Yeah. I think the the incident happened in the seventies, but then the decision came out in the the eighties. Prior to that, it was legal in 37 States to shoot someone running from the scene of a felony. Yes. Which goes back to English common law. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and then we had the Supreme court said, no, it is not a reasonable use of force, you know, reasonable seizure under the fourth amendment to shoot, everyone that is just running from the scene of a felony. They must have committed a crime that involved the threat of or the actual use of violence or their escape creates a greater danger to the public yeah. you know, than, than not capturing them does. Yeah, that we're going to continue to see more levels of, of force likely to produce death or serious bodily injury on their part if they're not stopped. Yeah. Right. Yeah. John? Uh, no, d- no comments right now at this point, dude. Okay. Uh, one, one last thing on the red dot that I w- wanted to go back to in, in their video. They're talking about, you know, out to 15 yards, there's really no, you, there's really no advantage for the dot out to about, you know, out to that 15 yard line. That's where uh, Mr. Wilson was saying that was where the line was from him. Like beyond 15 is where he really started to see the advantage. And I think Mr. Hackathorn quoted 18 yards was where he started okay. to see the advantage and then 25 and beyond. Definitely. Um, you know, but where are most self-defense shootings? Where do they occur? Most. But noticeably closer, right. measurably closer. All right. So do we really need the advantages that the dot brings and what level of shooters are actually going to see those advantages? Um, if all of us in our circle were to gather up on a range somewhere for a loser buys lunch match. Uh, I'm going to run my CZP 10 C with the SRO on top of it. Oh, by the way, that's the pistol I shot when I beat John recently. All right. <laughs> but when we, what's that? 
versus my iron sight, bone stock iron sighted SIG 320 from right. a true concealment rig. I, right. I was not wearing a duty rig, Mr. Weems. I was That's wearing right. like a legit concealment shirt when I, That's oh, you right. barely bested me. So <laughs> this is like when I shot the MMP with the acro from concealment mm-hmm. against the USPSA GM. Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> slings and arrows slings and arrows so (laughs) but you know when i left the range that day or or, uh, this you know this fictitious match we're talking about i'm gonna leave the range with my ironside glock just because i don't have an ironside cz Uh, because i've done all the force on force work with a glock sim gun i've done low light situations with the with the iron-sided guns I've done a lot of that other work with them, and I'm not willing to trade the known work that I have for speculation of, well, I'll get a little bit more precision from this stuff. Now, we're shooting scored course. Yeah, give me the dot because I'll get a little better score with it. Uh, But I have not done any low light work with the the dot, and I have not done any force on force with it, and I'm just not willing to walk down that path. Uh, I have done Dave Spaulding's vehicle combative class using a dot gun, so I put it in some work situations beyond just square range stuff. I'll throw that out to both of you. I think, uh, you know, mine, I always go back to the economist's approach of trade-offs. You know, it's not that the dot does not offer certain advantages, right? The first question I have to ask is, are those advantages you need? And I see the dot primarily as a precision-enhancing tool. Um, most people can do, you know, don't really, I think, fall along that line of 15 yards and better is where you really start to see the advantage of the dot. I'm not familiar with that many people that claim they shoot that much better with the dot at close range. You know, a lot of my understanding, I, I'm, I'm signed up for Jadlinski class in April, is that a lot of the red dot classes overcoming the inherent advantages the red dots have up close. How do you, you know, fix the, the, these problems so that they're no longer a problem? Um, so I just don't see the trade-offs as worth it yet. And, and I, I'm kind of teetering on the fence because my agency, we tend to have officers in, engaged in people with rifles and we tend to, some of our shootings have been further away. So maybe for like a rural officer working in an area without a long gun, maybe a red dot makes a little more sense, but for a, a day-to-day concealed carry tool as a piece of emergency life-saving equipment to solve a problem that's going to be somewhere from like three to five yards away. Um, I don't see the trade-offs as worth it yet. Now, I'm, I remain to be convinced. Uh, like I said, I've got the Jedi class coming up in April. Uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll uh, you know, have a conversion experience. We'll, we'll wait and see. So I'm the Kool-Aid drinker on this panel. Um, yes, some of Scott's stuff is overcoming the, the things in close. Part of it is learning to ex- accept imperfection. So like in my red dot classes, I throw in a, a spinoff on a parallax drill pretty early on where I'm having them drive the dots to the corners or to three, six, nine, and 12 and shooting a group so they can accept not being perfect, right? That dot doesn't have to be my crammeter top to bottom, left to right in the center of the glass. It's, can you see it go to work? Um, and that's also where the bloke, the broken and blocked optics work comes from, right? Do you have enough here that you can go to work with and fight with it and then get the advantages on the backside of the distance curve? Well, I'd just like to point out that if that's the case, then I'm well suited because my tolerance for imperfection is significant as witnessed by the, the guys I'm hanging out with tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. 
Um, one thing that Spalding has mentioned is, or Dave Spalding has mentioned that he has seen in a couple of instances a zero shift just kind of on the fly with his red dot optic. And I've got three red dot guns set up. So obviously I'm not anti-dot because I've gone to the expense of setting up three of them. Uh, one of them is a CZP-10C with a hollow sun. I, I think a, I think 507 is the number. Uh, a hollow sun. And the you last give it to time, me and I'll tell you. I'll... Yeah. The last time I got it out and shot it, I've experienced a zero shift in that gun. And so... My first, my first dot on duty was 2012. All of 2012, I was carrying an MMP with it, with an RMR on it, and I got about two thirds of the way through the year and started breaking RMRs like they were going out of style. Interestingly, I wasn't breaking them electronically like guys shooting RMRs mm-hmm. on Glocks at the time were. I was breaking them mechanically on an MMP, which is a whole another rabbit hole to go down. Is why that was different, but I was seeing the dot shifts. And when it first happened, it was, we were doing training at the office and I could track the dot moving laterally across the window during that and just watch it happen, continuing on with it. Yeah, it happens. Um, I had it happen on, um, I bought one of the uh, performance center shield guns that came with the dot on it, which was a British shield site. And again, could watch that track laterally during the course of run, that's when I knew it was broken. It, it does happen. The day that it happened with that shield, with the shield sight on it, though, I was also shooting Tom's drill of the month, which happened to be Dial's five-yard roundup shot three times. Still passed, still passed th- that drill with flying colors, but I could watch the group, you know, noticeably low right in the target, in the, in the bullseye. So where I was, all my shots were from three to six as opposed to center three to six on the circle, not on the score rings. Um, so it, it does happen. I've seen it happen. I've also seen dots just complain disappear because of the electronic failure. Yeah. You know, I, when I went back and took Jed Linsky's dot class in 2018, it was because I'd made the decision to revisit the dots. I just needed to be convinced they were going to work. Not, not that I needed to be convinced that, that you could shoot with them, but they would actually mechanically work. And once I got through that class with that dot holding up, then, then it was, okay, now we're back. I'm back to trusting these and I'm willing to work with it. Yeah. I've seen two dots completely fly off of guns in classes. Yep. Or the, or the mounting broke. And I know someone at this point that is listening, waiting with bated breath for us to pick on John again, uh, is screaming at the radio or at your YouTube. Well, I've had iron sights fail. Or some, yeah, I have seen the front sight yeah. fall off of a, of a Glock in class. I su- suspect that the sight was not properly installed, but I've also had a Gen 3 uh, 17 that the dovetail was not cut properly yep. and the rear sights would move on the gun, not while I was shooting, but like in a range bag riding in a car. Sometimes you pull it out and you notice a shift. So I started putting marks on it and like notice that it was shifting over time. And yeah, that's a problem. If that's your carry gun or your duty gun and the side has shifted and you weren't aware of it and you got to make a shot. Okay. That could lead to a miss or a very, very bad outcome with an unintentional hit. And 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 the the Glock Gen 5s have had that, the Gen 5 MOS guns have had that wrap on the rear sight shifting. 
I think it was MMP 1.0, some of the nine mils had a bad reputation for mm-hmm. dimensional changes in the rear sight dovetail, which was leading to a lot of problems. On the red dots right now, it's they, mechanically, they fit, they seem to have the reliability issue down. Electronically, they seem to have the reliability issue down. Mounting systems are still killing people, not killing people actually, but I mean, that's, that's the big problem with it is mounting system failures. And I've had it happen in classes. Uh, The best stuff I've seen right now is being put out by the guys, LA Sheriff's department's weapon training unit about here's the very specific dogmatic protocol for mounting an optic to a pistol. And it looks at the time involved. It's degreasing. It's using the chapstick like Loctite versus the liquid Loctite in the sequence in which you torque. Um, and I think they've got it in, but they're seeing enough guns to be able to experiment and validate the, those different processes. It almost sounds like you're tuning a 1911. That's all I'm saying. E, in some ways you're not far off. And then you go to George Mandy's, who's at least acquainted uh, and acquaintance of most of ours. George is like, can we just get manufacturers to cut their slides for an acro and get aim point to actually sell them and we'll have the whole mounting problem fixed? Uh, it does appear that that mounting system is far superior than any of the mm-hmm. others. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've made the decision that I'm not going to invest any more money and optic stuff until the acro becomes available. And then, of course, now I've got to go down the road of switching everything over to acro. Um, but I'm not going to experiment anymore with, with the dot other than what I've already got. I'll keep doing with that. I've got an RMR waiting to go on something. Um, it's probably going to replace that hollow sun that's on that CZ, um, with an eye to the future of going to an acro with a slide directly milled for yep. the acro and not having an adapter plate on it. I've got, I've got a, a pistol just waiting to have the slide go off to ATEI to be cut specifically for the acro. I've been holding off until the acro P2 shipped. Mm-hmm. Um, and that looks like that's even going to continue to be farther out before Aimpoint puts them out there. Yeah. Uh, which is unfortunate. My understanding is that um, at least on the law enforcement side of sales, uh, the MMP 2.0 is going to be available with a direct factory acro cut. That's what I hear. Yeah, uh, I saw a picture of one, but it did not have the updated trigger on it. It still had the old curve trigger on it. Yeah. And the good news is, if you have the Acro footprint, Steiner's got a pistol-mounted optic that the only knock on it seems to be a 13-hour shutoff, but that mm-hmm. Steiner optic is specific to the endpoint footprint. So I wonder how long it's going to be before the other manufacturers shift, and that's how they're manufacturing their optics. It'll be interesting to see. Um, shot it would be interesting to see if that's a discussion at shot where that's going with it shot but I know as of last night or this morning Beretta and Steiner specifically pulled out a shot so it's going to be interesting who's even there to have that discussion I'm sure those discussions are happening but this just won't be with as much of the industry or people peripheral to the industry at this point John, anything on that topic? No, I'm I'm personally waiting. I've got one factory SIG gun. I thought my agency was going to allow red dots, so I went ahead and bought a factory SIG gun because we're a 320 shop. Uh, They then backed off. Uh, I'm waiting to hear. We've had a year-long T&E study with five different red dots, so I'm waiting to see what's going on. 
Um, I'm not going to buy anything. I, I think the Acro is the wave of the future, but I'm going to wait till the agency decides what they're going to allow before I go there. But the nice thing about being a 320 shooter is we can know that Mr. Wilson will set me up one for the Acro uh, pretty handily. Because, you know, he's an innovator. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not. You know, you, you yeah, guys, yeah, or he's not. Yeah. And if you, as you guys didn't catch it, LAPD is apparently adopted a uh, FN pistol, nine mil FN pistol, already set up for the dot, and it will be issued with a dot on it. Which so dot did they the, get to? I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now. I think it's one of the open emitter versions, but I'm not 100% positive, so I, I don't okay. want to guess. Yeah, right now, the only optic approved by my agency is the RMR. Um, so I'm not really rush i do have a glock 19 set up to agency standards uh so that when the guys that are wanting to do or do optic work i can pull out the same basic setup they're using and run that um but for my own personal uses i think i'm i'm holding off until the acro becomes available and the slides are directly milled for it um if that means selling what i've got to fund that later down the road i'm okay with doing that but i just don't want to go jumping in even more right now no, I'm not going to get another gun milled for something other than an acro at this point, something for that footprint. I'll have plenty of guns that are set up with a Leopold or a Trigicon footprint, but going forward, it's only going to be enclosed emitter optics that are mounting, basically clamping onto the slide left to right or right to left. Uh-huh. All right, uh, John, what do you have upcoming? Where are you going to be? Oh, I got upcoming. Uh, I think this will air after I've been there, but I'm heading to Carl Renz for lectures in January. Uh, Randy Harris and I have a combo class in the Chattanooga, Tennessee area in February. Uh, got TACCON in March. Uh, I guess uh, jhern.com will have all the class listings. I've got a two-day cognitive pistol going to be at the Royal Range in July coming up. i uh, got a class in Ohio as well, so go to the website. I'm about 80% booked for the year uh, out at Mead Hall in, I think, November now. So it's filling up. Uh, go to jhern.com or twopillarstraining.com, and uh, class list should be there. Eric? Uh, I've got some stuff at Gunsight at the end of February, running a shotgun and a tr- class, uh, followed by a traditional intermediate pistol class, Gunsight 350 down there. We'll all be together in Dallas at the end of March for TACCON. Um, I just did my interview with Tiffany today, and she repeatedly reminded me how I screwed up with my class submissions. Um, and other than that, just some local classes in Gunsight most of the year, looking to set some other things up. Um, nothing solidified yet on my on my training side. Oh, I will be an assistant instructor for the inestimable John Hearn at the Route 66 range down in Southern, Cal- in Southern California in April for the Range Master Instructor Development Course. I will be John's range boy, cabana boy, whatever we want to call it. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, I guess I'll pimp what I've got coming. Uh, January 29th, I will be in Andersonville, Georgia. Yes, that Andersonville. Is that a prison uh, camp? Uh, there was one there. At one point in time, uh, it's funny that uh, a a gentleman who is not from the South uh, sent me a message about he didn't know about coming to Andersonville as a Yankee. And I'm like, oh, come on, there'll be plenty of Yankees there to keep you company. And uh, uh, but I got to say, I've toured the POW museum there, and I've toured the the facilities repeatedly. 
uh, it would be worth the trip just to come see that and get the class as well. For my, so my trigger management class there on the 29th, uh, the first weekend in February, I will be at Top Shots in Terre Haute, Indiana. That's going to be a Friday class and then a second a Saturday class, but it's one day classes. Uh, Friday will be trigger management. Saturday will be uh, my inaugural teaching of a handgun combatives essential pistol class. Excellent. And then um, the there's a weekend that splits like the last couple of days of April and the first day of May. Uh, I'm on Friday. I'm teaching my close range carbine. Saturday teaching trigger management and Sunday teaching shotgun manipulations. That's at the Cavalier uh, Gun Club just outside of Richmond, Virginia. And then June 25th and 26th, I think are the dates. I'll be outside of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Or Saturday is trigger management. Sunday is my pistol craft class. And then in August, I want to say the 20th and 21st, whatever that weekend is, I'll be at the Royal Range in Nashville with trigger management on Saturday and uh, handgun combatants essential pistol on Sunday. Let me just jump in one other thing. I, I, Daryl's put it out, but I don't know how much discussion it's gotten. Mm-hmm. This September, I want to say the 9th, 10th, and 11th in Dallas, we're going to run a shotgun version of the Revolver Roundup. Yeah. So it's going to be Tom Givens, Rob Hot, myself, Daryl, and Steve Fisher, as it stands now, for three days of shotgun. Come get your boomstick on. Mm-hmm. All right. Any closing thoughts, Sean? No, not at this time, man. Thanks for uh, hanging out with me. Absolutely. Any closing thoughts, Eric? The only thing I'd say at this point is a lot of the data is coming out of the law enforcement world just because that's where the the civil issues are and we're needing to get the data to back up stuff on the civil side of things. Hopefully, in the near future, we can start getting a little bit more data collection focused on the civilian defensive side of things. But there's still lessons to be learned, things we can pull out of the law enforcement only or law enforcement centric data on decision-making and doing things to not get the wrong people shot. Yep. All righty. Again, I'd like to thank the John and Eric for participating tonight and thanks to all the other guests that have come and been on the, on the show. Uh, It's been great fun. And uh, the feedback that I'm getting continues to be very well, uh, be very good feedback. Uh, I want to thank uh, like the guys from the Evolution Security Podcast, Brian Eastridge, yep. Rob Beckman, who have all you know helped helped me along the way, and I'm hoping I'm getting to return the favor to, to those guys some as well. Uh, so I would encourage the people that are listening to this show to go give those shows a listen to, uh, you know, because I want to see us all do well and all first. We're, we're colleagues; we're not competing. And um, you know, Davis you got, brother. Oh. Yeah, I was going to say the Davis brothers have a real good program going over there. So does Brian. I don't know. I don't know Beckman. Yeah. The Davis brothers are the, are the evolution security podcast. Uh, really good guys, really good guys. And Brian's Brian, great. I don't know Rob personally, uh, but I've had some you know, online interaction with him and I was on his show. Uh, John, I think you're coming up on EvoSec soon, aren't you? Yeah, I've got, uh, well, I actually was supposed to be doing it tonight. They had to cancel because they were both sick. So I, I'm, uh, recording with them next wednesday okay all right um oh and you two guys were on a uh, primary and secondary podcast recently that was pretty yes good. we were yeah uh so guys go out and check and look that out and 
I understand that everyone's most important asset is their time. And so thank you for choosing to spend your time with us.